few things <clears throat> are more scary than intimidation. Few things are more scary than being intimidated by someone else. Sometimes that happens. We get intimidated when someone has more education than we have. Maybe they're older than we are. Maybe there are neighbors that have lived in our neighborhood longer than us. Maybe it's someone at work that's in a superior position than us. And it can cause issues when people intimidate other people. For example, some companies are learning about the safety <clears throat> issues that occur when employees that have been there longer and have worked longer intimidate younger employees when it comes to safety practices. If an older person is doing something that isn't safe, they've learned younger people are less likely to speak up because they're intimidated and afraid that that older person might speak negatively about them or prevent them from getting the training they need or not approve them to become their journeyman position. And we see intimidation at some of its strongest here in this passage today. A disabled blind man that probably was sitting near the temple asking for money is being questioned and intimidated by these fancy, wealthy Pharisees. And they're questioning him about who Jesus was. And this passage that we read, we read all the whole chapter. Thank you, Carolyn. Even though it's long, it, it reads well and flows well. This chapter is a reminder for us that we see God's beauty not just in gorgeous sunsets, not just in the amazing, beautiful forest, not just in the peaceful ocean waves, not just in music or painting and art, but we also see God's beauty sometimes through literature, through God's literary beauty that he gives us. For example, throughout the Gospel of John, we're seeing that this regular, everyday guy named John that was a fisherman puts this Gospel together, and he puts in there seven miracles or signs, and we see one of those miracles today. John describes seven I am statements by Jesus throughout the book. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. He also includes seven long discourse discussions that Jesus has, which we looked at the last two weeks. And John, even, even though there's 12 disciples, he only gives us the name of seven of those disciples, showing how important some of these things are by using the number seven. And part of that beauty, that literary beauty that John shows us that we see about God here, a blind man sees Jesus when no one else sees Jesus. That's part of God's beauty that we see. And if you have an outline there, we're going to look at the blind man's story first, and then this blind man's testimony. And when we get to that part, I'll change to calling him the, the seeing man. So the blind man's story, if we can picture this chapter, kind of like a show we might watch on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something like that. Every show usually has a setting or a set that it takes place in. It has certain characters that participate in it, and then it has a plot and action and either scenes or whole episodes. And we can kind of take that way of looking at this story similar to a show. And let's first look at the setting. Within John, the setting is described for us in verse 1. Really, it goes back to chapter 8, verse 59, where it says, <clears throat> Jesus is having this long discussion, and it says, 
the Pharisees and the Jews, they picked up stones to throw at Jesus. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And we learn in chapter 9, verse 1, as Jesus passed by, so he's probably not a long ways from the temple, he saw a blind man from birth. And that's the context there. Jesus is still in Jerusalem. He's probably near the temple. It's a few days after that Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. It's about six months before Jesus' crucifixion, before he will die. And we read here in chapter 9 what's described as a narrative. It's describing what Jesus did. It's a miracle that Jesus does there in Jerusalem. That's the setting of what happens in our story. And there are a bunch of different characters in this blind man's story. There's Jesus. He's kind of the hero of the story, of course. There's the blind man. We'll call him the protagonist. He's the good guy that gives for us a good example to follow. And if we step into the, the shoes of this blind man, you know, he knows what the sound of his mom and dad's voice might have been, but he's never seen their face, if we can imagine what it's like to be blind. He can smell a beautiful rose, like we have roses now growing around the outside of the church. He can smell those beautiful roses, but he can never see their beauty. He can feel that warm sun that has disappeared today, but he could never appreciate the light it provides for him. And this blind man, he's probably sitting just outside the temple area, and it was a common practice in that time for people with severe disabilities to sit somewhere along the road to the temple hoping to get some kindness from people going to the temple. And that's how he happens to come across Jesus. So Jesus is the hero, that blind man, he's the protagonist, the good guy that provides for us a good example to follow. But we have the antagonists in the story. They're those Pharisees and the Jews described. They give us the bad example, and they're the ones that cause the conflict. And we know these guys by now as we've been going through the Gospel of John. They like to read the law, they like to add to the law, and they like to try to enforce the law. And these guys, they're more interested, as we read here, about protecting their territory and their reputation than they are interested in discovering the truth. They're the antagonists. And we have various supporting cast members, kind of people that play minor roles in our show. We have the disciples we see here in verse 2. It says, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Here the disciples, they're looking for someone to blame for this man's condition, which was kind of a common thought at that time, that if something bad happens to you, it must have been your sin or someone else's sin. And we know as believers now, all physical ailments are the result of sin, but it's one man's sin in the Old Testament, Adam. When he sinned, that sin nature was passed on to every single person. And because of that sin nature, bad things happen, and sometimes physical disabilities and things happen because of this fallen sinful nature that we live in, this fallen sinful nature world that we live in. And it's good to remind ourselves here, just as Jesus reminds them, that God isn't some moral slot machine. When they ask him the question, 
Was it the guy's sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says it was neither of those. And as we live today, you know, God's not a moral slot machine where if we wake up in the morning, we do a good deed, we have a good quiet time, God's not going to give us a $100 bill outside our front door to reward us, right? Or if we sleep in on accident and we don't have a quiet time in the morning, he's not going to make all the lights red so we show up to work late. That's not how God works. It's, that's, you know, karma and different things of other religions, but that's not how God works. See, his disciples appear to have con confused a couple of issues. They've confused God's divine punishment with consequences of sin. See, God will punish sin at a future time when someone dies and they're judged, but not right now. And just... In a similar way, there are consequences for our sin. If we do bad things or make bad decisions, that's going to negatively affect us. But when we read about this blind man, there doesn't seem to be anything he did to cause it. It's just a physical disability he has and has to live with. So that's the first group of supporting cast, the disciples. But there's also the parents we read about here. And just as the Pharisees were more interested in protecting their tradition than getting the truth, the parents are more interested in protecting their reputation than telling the truth. Because when this guy was healed, this blind man was healed, I bet one of the first people he went to go tell about him getting sight again was probably his parents, right? They would have known that he was healed, and I bet the guy told him about who healed him. But the parents pretty much just punt, if you're familiar with American football. They just punt the ball on first down. They don't even try. They just give up. That's the parents, part of the supporting cast. And then there's the neighbors, the onlookers, and probably the helper in our story, too. We read about the neighbors in verse 8, briefly. It says, Therefore the neighbors, after the blind man had been healed, and those who previously saw him, so the onlookers, they saw him as a beggar. They were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? These people, they knew the guy's problems. They knew his issues. They knew he probably wanted to get well. And they have trouble noticing that this is the same blind man. Notice the neighbors who can see don't recognize the man who used to not be able to see. John's literary beauty and irony he gives us here. And they don't even call him by his name. He's just another guy they saw, just an object. And there's also probably a helper in this story. If you noticed in verse 7, Jesus tells the guy, go to the pool of Siloam in verse 7. Go to the pool of Siloam. The temple in Jerusalem was in the northeastern corner, and the pool of Siloam was in the southeastern corner, about a half a mile walk. So after Jesus has rubbed clay in his eyes, I'm guessing someone had to help this guy get to that pool. He could have walked there on his own, but I'm willing to, to think someone was there that helped him and saw this all happen. So those are the supporting cast. And then there's us. We're sitting in the live audience getting to watch this story occur. Just like other people were probably watching this occurring as well. But what's the plot and the action of our story? John's purpose is including is to tell us that we should learn to recognize Jesus in our lives. 
And he starts with it and he ends with it, right? In the first seven verses, we learn about how the blind see, but the ones that can see are blind. And then in verses 35 to 41, the blind man, he believes, and the ones that should believe don't believe. And then in the middle, we have four scenes. The man is in front of his neighbors, the crowd, and his friends. The second scene is Jesus is in front, or the man is in front of the Pharisees. Then the parents for that third scene or episode are brought up in front of the Pharisees. And then they ask that blind man again for a fourth scene or picture brings up again. And notice the literary irony that John gives to us. A blind man recognizes Jesus when no one else recognizes Jesus. The one that cannot physically see Jesus is the first one to recognize Jesus. And the ones that can physically see Jesus are actually blind of him. And it shows for us a good example and a bad example, just like any good story and narrative. The good examples are given for us by the author to follow, and the negative examples are given for us to avoid. The blind man obeys what Jesus says, he accepts who Jesus was, and he believes in Jesus as the Son of God. Meanwhile, the Pharisees and the Jews and the parents and the neighbors and the onlookers, they're so hard-hearted that they try to explain away the miracle and don't even recognize the guy. So let's look at this good example placed here by John for us to follow. This seeing man's testimony in this passage. And this isn't just a testimony given in front of a willing audience as you've caught up here. If I brought someone here and they gave a testimony about God's work in their life, you all would probably say amen and clap and cheer and accept it willfully and, and gladly. But this guy has a hostile audience that he's sharing his testimony in front of. And from that hostile audience and this seeing man, we learn three things that apply to us. One, that we stand up against the pressure from people that oppose us. And we see him do that three different times where this blind man, the seeing man, stands up against the pressure of people that oppose him. The first time at the first meeting is in verses 15 and 16. The Pharisees, uh, the neighbors have brought the man to the Pharisees. Verse 15, then the Pharisees also were asking the blind man how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Notice how these guys don't really dispute the miracle that occurred. They're disputing the time that it occurred on the Sabbath. And they're concerned that the Sabbath was violated. And this was serious because of the reputation that the Pharisees had for kicking people out of the temple. And there's a few reasons they're upset. One, Jesus made clay on the Sabbath, and that could be considered work. Two, he healed someone. He did a good deed. That's not allowed to be done on the Sabbath. 
And third, walking half, of mi half a mile might have violated the Sabbath too. Because the Pharisees, they had so many laws written about what to do and what to not do on the Sabbath. When someone wrote down all of their rules about the Sabbath, it took 24 chapters in the Mishnah to describe all of their rules for the Sabbath. So there's probably three offenses here that Jesus and this man have done. I've had a work, a couple of work jokes I've been holding on to for a while, okay? Almost six million Americans currently are not working, and that number skyrockets when you count also those who are at work right now. Okay, maybe. Another work joke. How many therapists do you need to change a light bulb? Just one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. Okay. So Jesus is getting in trouble for working on the Sabbath here by the Pharisees. And it's not just one time they put pressure on this guy. They call him up. They ask him a second time at that same meeting. In verse 17, so the Pharisees said to the blind, I'm sorry, verse 17, so the Pharisees said to the blind man again, what do you say about Jesus since he opened your eyes? They repeatedly ask this guy, hoping to maybe get him to contradict himself. They hope they've struck a little fear in him and maybe he'll say a little something different or stutter or, or tell a different part of the story and they can catch him and contradict himself. But the man is bold. He's, he, he even declares a little more. This time he says, Jesus, he is a prophet. He doesn't just describe what happened. He's starting to point to Jesus. Then the parents get called up and they bring the blind man, the seeing man, back again. And they ask him a third time in verse 24 and 26. It says, a second time the Pharisees called the man who'd been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Kind of leading their witness this time. They're kind of teeing it up for him. And Jesus says, I know this. I was blind and I see. I'm sorry, the blind man says, I know this. I was blind, now I see. So the Pharisees said to him in verse 26, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Again, they're putting pressure on this guy to withdraw his testimony. They want him to admit his guilt in siding with Jesus. And there's an application for us too. That we too, we might find ourselves in situations where people are opposing us because we believe in God. They might even put pressure on us. John Calvin in his commentary on these verses says, When an opportunity occurs, we must endeavor, as far as lies in our power, to oppose the wicked attempts of those actuated by false zeal, reproach, and slander the gospel. Right? People might put pressure on us because of our faith, right? They might say, so you believe in God, but do you believe in three gods or one God? You talk about that thing called the Trinity. Might be something they put pressure on us. They might say, you say that Jesus was God, but he was also a man. How can he be both? They might say, you believe that scripture is inspired and inerrant, but sometimes there are footnotes in there that give you different readings. What's that about? And it sometimes can put pressure on us because sometimes those people, they might be older than us, more educated than us. 
They might be family members that are kind of matriarchs or patriarchs in our family. They might be someone at work that's our boss and uses that position to try to put pressure on us. And that's where we get direction for those situations from this seeing man by noticing also what he does. See, he stands up to the pressure of people that oppose him, but he also points to the truth that God has given him. And when we encounter opposition, as this seeing man did, we have two ways that we can point to the truth God has given us. First, to God's word, but also to God's story. And as God's word, we have a Bible that contains 66 books. It was written over 1,500 years by various different authors. And it's objective truth that's been translated from Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek directly into our language. And sometimes we have to point to God's word when people oppose us. When I was working at uh, the United Way of Stanislaus County, I worked there for six years. And I remember we were talking as a group of people once and they said, we were, I don't remember what we were talking about. I remember the receptionist turned to me and said, Christopher, don't all roads lead to God? Doesn't the Bible say all roads lead to God? She said, I don't remember what we were talking about, but somehow the conversation turned to her looking at me in front of a group. And I had to kindly, gently say, well, Jesus does not say that in God's word. In fact, Jesus says, it's only through me that you access you know, the Father. That was a time where I had to rely on God's word to kind of steer the conversation. But in addition to God's word that helps us, we also have God's story. And that's what we see with this seeing man in the text. He tells the Pharisees over and over again in verse 15 near the end, he says, what do you say about him? I'm sorry, I'm on verse 17, verse 15. He tells the Pharisees, Jesus applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Verse 25, he says again, one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. And then that last time, in the seeing man's longest speech, he says in verse 30, well, here's an amazing thing, that you who do not know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him since the beginning of time. It has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind person. If this man were not from God, he can do nothing, he says. The seeing man simply tells the Pharisees, I couldn't see, now I can see. He tells his neighbors, you used to see me, now I can see you. <laughs> you know, what else do you need? His witness was clear that he gives to these people. And that's sometimes for us, we have our own testimony that we can share with other people. Saying my finances were terrible until I got in church and then I heard about this guy named Dave Ramsey and he helped me get my finances under control by using biblical principles. My family was a wreck until the church introduced me to this thing called Focus on the Family and they helped me get things organized. I used to avoid failure at all costs at my job and work myself to death until I started to believe in Jesus and realized I don't get my value out of my job. 
or I was addicted to cocaine and alcohol and all these things, but through Jesus, I've been able to get off of those. Those are our testimony we get to share. So we learn from this seeing man's testimony that we stand up against the pressure of people that oppose us. We point to the truth that God has given us, and we also need to accept the consequences that come to us. The reality for this seeing man is that the Pharisees, they've been embarrassed by this blind beggar. Their only way to save face is to kick him out of the temple, which we read in verse 34. It says they put him out, which shouldn't surprise us because from verse 22 we learn that they had this reputation for persecuting anyone that sided with Jesus, and that's why the parents didn't say anything. And this was a big deal. It's not like going to a bar where you have a few too many drinks and they kick you out and then they let you back in the next day. If you get kicked out of the temple, you're never allowed back, you're excommunicated, that's your friends, your family, your fellowship was wrapped up in the temple. This was serious for him, but he was willing to endure those consequences. And the reality for us is sometimes following Jesus and believing in him is a cost to us and has consequences for us. When I lived in Texas, it was great to live in Texas, the buckle of the Bible belt, they called it, because everybody kind of was a Christian, it seemed like. And if you were a Christian, you were part of the in crowd and you were accepted. But living in Washington State or living in California where I grew up, it's not like that. You're kind of the outside fringe person if you're a believer. And that means sometimes we're going to have consequences. One of my wife's friends, Rob, that she went to undergraduate school with, Rob went off to graduate school. He became an Episcopalian priest. And he ended up moving to a town uh, two years ago right near us. He had been in New York and then Florida, and then he moved to a town just 15 minutes away from Jen and I, and we got to have dinner with him once. And he shared about how when he became an Episcopalian priest, some of the conflicts that occurred when he joined the church. Because as culture started to drift and culture started to embrace certain lifestyle choices and things like that, so did the Episcopalian church. And after about five years of certain church pastors and leaders trying to work with the denomination, they had to say, you know what, we can't be part of these things that you all are now embracing. We don't believe that's part of what the Bible teaches. We don't believe that's part of historic Christianity. I'm sorry, we can't follow you down this path. And Rob shared that every single congregation that had a pastor and leaders that decided not to follow that unbiblical path, they lost their building and every single financial resource they had because of how that church structure is structured. And it was interesting because Rob had just come to be a pastor in Visalia more than a decade later of a congregation that didn't go that direction, that lost their building. And more than a decade later, they still didn't have a church that was their own. They were still meeting in different places. They had rented office spaces during the week for their staff to work in. And it was a serious cost to them to stand for biblical truth. There were real consequences for them. And I know you're not Episcopalian priests, but you are in families where I've known families that have to call the cops to come because of domestic abuse or sexual abuse happening within their families. 
You are employees that work certain places where you see illegal things going on and you have to tell people. And you know when you tell people that this is occurring, the people doing the bad stuff are going to know who it was that reported it. You are going to have a boss that sometimes you have to disagree with on things like that. So as we wrap up our time together, we have a lot in common with this blind man. Sometimes it's easy to read awesome stories like this and think, man, if, if Jesus you know, healed me like that, that would be so great. Or if I could have seen Jesus like these people saw him, I would believe in him. But I want to point out something to you you might have missed. <clears throat> and I missed as I studied the passage Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and didn't notice it until Wednesday. This man had never seen Jesus until the very last section, starting in verse 34. When he went in front of his neighbors, the Pharisees, Pharisees again, he'd never actually seen Jesus. Because when they kick him out of the temple, that's when Jesus goes and finds him, and Jesus shares the gospel with him, and the man believes in him. Yet, even though he's never seen Jesus, he was the only one willing to testify about Jesus. See, God loves us, and he won't let us be kicked out and dismissed, just as he didn't let that seeing man be alone. He went to him, talked to him, and invited him to believe in him. And that's where the strength is for us, that we should have strength from this story to stand up to the people that put pressure on us, that oppose us, to help us point to the truth that God has given us, and to know that he'll be with us when we have to accept those consequences. Let's pray. God, thank you for the amazing story of this blind man that you met there near the temple and that got to see and share his story with people. And, and his story is recorded by John for us. I pray you would give us strength and, and courage, just like this blind man had, to stand up for Jesus when the Pharisees put pressure on him. Help us know how to point to the truth that you've given us, whether it be scripture or your story in our lives. And we pray that you'll be with us and comfort us as we have to accept consequences that come our way when we stand for your word. God, we know it's not easy to do these things, and we live in a culture that doesn't always embrace those. But we're thankful for a church where we can share them among each other, encourage one another, be there for each other. And in many ways, we're more of a family to each other than our own family is to us. As we prepare for communion, please prepare our hearts as we remember what you did for us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.